Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. Everybody, happy Monday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. So many things to get to this morning. We've got the big Twitter file release and the reaction to that release, which in many ways was as interesting as the info in the release itself. We also have to weigh in on the Kanye West, Alex Jones interview. I know you guys have seen this at this point, but there are some new developments and we also felt compelled to give our own take on it. Um, Democrats are uh, positioning themselves to rig the primaries even harder for Joe Biden have the details of that, the states that they are putting, in what order and what the timing of that is likely to look like. We also have some new information, not that this will surprise anyone, but that Sam Bankman-Fried was lying out of his ass when he was talking to <laughs> the New York Times yep. um, in other contexts as well. And we have an interesting uh, media fail. I mean, it's an interesting story to start with. There were some indications from the Iranian regime that they may be getting rid of their morality police. But the way that news outlets ran with this without any of the sort of like mitigating language and possibility that this is just a feint or that it's not happening really at all is also an interesting story. Um, we have Ro Khanna here listed in uh, the Chiron. You can see there at the bottom. He's going to be coming into the studio a little bit later, though. He was <laughs> named in the Twitter files, actually comes off looking mm -hmm. quite good of everybody in the Twitter files. He comes off looking the best. We're going to talk to that, him about what they reveal, but that will be sort of separate. We'll post yes. that later separately from the show because we're talking to him a little bit later. But before we get to any of that... 
Live show, put it up there on the screen. <laughs> Last time that you will hear it from me, folks, December 6th and December 7th. We have a great show planned for everybody. What did you call it, Crystal? The year-end spectacular. Year-end spectacular. Yeah, we we've got, fun, uh, yeah, we've, we've been we've working on some like year-end superlatives that mm -hmm. we're gonna unveil, which I'm actually kind of excited about once I started jumping into yeah, it. It's, it's gonna be fun. We've been building the graphics and coming up with some even more new stuff. So I think everybody's gonna have a great time. Boston and New York City, December 6th, December 7th. Tomorrow, Counterpoints will be sitting in for us here at the Breaking Points desk, so don't worry, you will still have full shows. And premium subs will have access, of course, to the full shows that we do at our live shows. We're looking forward to meeting everybody there in person in New York and in Boston. I'm excited. Christmas in New York, it's a magical time. Yeah, but, it's uh, gonna be super fun. A little bit that, different from our other shows, too, since we're gonna, and by the way, on uh, Tuesday when we're in New York, we should be getting Georgia runoff yes. results. In, Possibly uh, live on the stage. Live on the stage, yeah. so that could be breaking while yeah. we're there with you. And like I said, we've got a bunch of like sort of special year-end activities mm -hmm. planned um, that you know we sort of dragged Kyle and Marshall reluctantly That's to, right. but they're going to be good sports well, about it. Well, they're going to, yes. They better put a <laughs> smile on their face after all the hard work that we put into it. All right, to the show. Twitter, so of course, you guys want to know what's going on with Twitter. CounterPoints did a fantastic job of breaking this all down uh, initially, but for those of you who haven't paid attention just yet, let's put this up there on the screen. We basically pulled four different tweets from Matt himself. He put out this tweet thread um, late on Friday night saying, thread the Twitter files. Now, we pulled what we thought were some of the most important ones from these Twitter files. He said, by 2020, requests from connected actors to delete tweets were routine. One executive would write to another, more to review from the Biden team. The reply would come back handled. Furthermore, both parties had access to these censorship tools. For instance, in 2020, requests from the Trump White House and the Biden campaign were received and honored. However, and he points to, this led public policy executives to send out polite WTF queries, several employees noted that there was tension between the comms and the policy teams who had, quote, little or less control over moderation and the safety and trust teams. And I think really what comes through on the email so far of what uh, Matt has released here is just a complete and total cluster, a uh, inability to be grounded in principle of clearly being scared off by the WikiLeaks emails, hair on fire, just paranoia without any grounding crystal in any sense of free speech of the First Amendment, of any consistent application of content moderation. And in both cases, a really gross, just like caving to both requests from the Trump and the Biden team, uh, which show you that people at the top really can work the refs in this way, which I don't think is appropriate. Um, now we can talk about the Hunter stuff yeah. aside, like what exactly what right. they were censoring. <laughs> but, yeah. you know, I do also want to say on that front though, the Biden team refuses to address the Hunter Biden laptop. Then they're like, oh, you know, it could be fake and they're planting all the stories. Meanwhile, though, Hunter's dick pics, they're flagging for the actual Twitter yeah. content. So is well, it real then? Is that a, is that, are you admitting <laughs> the laptop no, no, is real? Right. I yeah. mean, <laughs> The whole way they handled this with, you know, just to give the backstory, as a yeah. reminder here, the reason that this is so significant is because they took this just heavy-handed, overt approach to censoring the New York Post reporting on this Hunter laptop. Information which the Biden team never denied and which now, long after the fact, 
has been confirmed as real by multiple news outlets. Yeah. And yet you had this over-the-top effort by multiple actors to portray this as this is Russian misinformation. It has all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. We know, and I'll get to this in a minute, but we know from other reporting that, um, you know, there was, and, and from what Mark Zuckerberg himself said, that mm. this was sort of flagged by the FBI, that something like this might be coming out. So we know there was some sort of government involvement there. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, I think, listen, it is totally appropriate for dick pics of the candidate's son to be taken down. But what this really reveals is the fact that they didn't actually need the government mm -hmm. telling them what and how yeah, to censor. Right. right. This is more a story of corporate power. And that's that's why I think these revelations are interesting. They add some texture and some color to some things that we already knew mm -hmm. about how this process ultimately unfolded. But one of the most, you know, noteworthy things that Taibi found here is that there wasn't actually that he could find in any of these files direct government instruction or pressure to, you know, handle the New York Post story in the way that they did. So instead, as you said, Sagar, the picture emerges more of a total corporate cluster. It seems like the people who made the initial decision to label this as unsafe, to uh, suspend accounts that were sharing the information to keep people even from DMing it to each other, mm -hmm. which is a, a measure that they normally only reserve for extreme circumstances, things like child pornography. Um, that decision seems to have been made by people who potentially didn't really get that this was going to be a political firestorm with far-reaching implications. Jack Dorsey, who was, you know, head of Twitter at the time, but kind of an absentee owner, right. really wasn't uh, read into this whole situation as it unfolded. Then once they've already taken these incredibly heavy-handed um, approaches, then they start go, oh my God, what have we done? How do we walk this bad? I'm not sure we can justify this. And ultimately ends with Jack himself posting a thread and saying basically like, we fucked this up. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what comes out here. I mean, you know, they talk about both campaigns had access to these tools. I think that the tools exist in that political candidates of either party are given any sort of like special access to this is not appropriate. There's clearly like very little concern within Twitter about First Amendment implications. They're thinking more about like their terms of service. And clearly, you know, you have more Democrats than Republicans at Twitter, so they're more amenable to, like, arguments coming from the uh, left of center and from the Democratic Party team. And, uh, you know, ultimately, you end up with this sort of catastrophic situation that they more or less bumbled into. And that's kind of, you know, you have ideological actors, people like Vijay Agati, who clearly has, like, an yes. ideological oh view. And so... She, because everybody else is just like chaos and sort of like flying by the seat of their pants, it seems like she's able to assert her will here. So the last thing I'll say, because I do think this is really interesting, is you have conservatives now who are sort of beginning to recognize the problem with corporate power. You now have corporate boardrooms that in certain instances, you know, culturally certainly are uh, allied against them. You know, some of these are just because uh, that's where the dollars are. That's like what the the business decision makes sense. And so you have this beginning of a reckoning of, oh, my God, maybe these actors are too powerful. But you don't have a fully fleshed out critique of corporate power. So you end up with situations like this where the reaction is more about these particular individuals, like this is a good guy, this is a bad guy, Elon's a good guy, Vijay Agade is a, a bad guy rather than looking overall at the structure and saying like, 
this is really bad for everyone to have these social media companies having so much power, so much control, and subject to the whims of one or two or a handful of executives. Well, it's so capricious, especially what comes through on that. Yeah. That they just have, they just decided on a whim. And you know, let's throw the next one up there on the screen because this is where it all becomes important. From Ken Klippenstein and Lee Fong's great reporting about the truth cops and the specific coordination, at least at the sub-governmental agency level of the DHS and of social media companies flagging what is misinformation, what's not information, misinformation. At one point, even flagging like Afghan withdrawal stories as potential misinformation. I, yeah. think, I think this actually shows you, which is that the FBI, the DHS, can shape the environment under a bipartisan administration, as they did mm -hmm. um, under the Trump administration, by coming to Facebook and coming to Twitter and saying, hey, we know that there's going to be some hack operation, possibly in the waning days of the election. And that's what puts Facebook and Twitter on hair trigger alert, which effectively leads Facebook. You know, Facebook doesn't get enough scrutiny. They basically made it unfindable on their platform. Yeah. So they may not abandon, it, but that's still pretty bad. Well, I mean, that's straight censorship they took, too. They frankly, a much more intelligent approach yeah, right. from a like PR perspective. Because what Twitter did was so brazen and so undeniable and so heavy-handed, it would have been much more intelligent for them just to suppress the news, which is something that you know they do all the time and that mm -hmm. Elon himself has floated actually doing more, something that YouTube does, something clearly that Facebook does as well. So it's like, we're just gonna make it so that this doesn't get shared all that much, but you're gonna sound like a conspiracy theorist if you're out there talking about like shadow bans right. and algorithmic suppression and you're never gonna be able to really prove it because none of this is transparent whatsoever. And that is the gateway into the apparatus which is only being built more so from 2020 onward of flagging, quote, misinformation. Like, who knows what these people are downranking and uh, explicitly shadow banning behind the scenes. I do hope it should be some sort of catalyst towards taking the power out of these people's hands and just saying, look, Clearly, this is not working. The Trump team can work the refs. The Biden team can work the refs. I mean, the Biden stuff, you know, clearly doxing actually is illegal and posting private communications and private photos and all that. Okay, fine. So under a very consistent, standard, uncontroversial content moderation, should that be taken down immediately? That said, yes. uh, out of that, like, where's the line come from? You know, with emails from the laptop, which were immediately blocked. Also, the White House press secretary's account was literally locked by Twitter, which they point to in the Twitter files. This is outrageous. Outrageous. We have got to come, come to some form of decision-making tree where they don't even have the ability to work on this. And because absent that, in the vacuum, you have everybody, people in power, celebrities even, Taibi says, working to uh, behind the scenes. And you also clearly have Vijay Agade and this other fellow, Yoel Roth, who's given an interview yesterday to Kara Swisher at the Times. And it's amazing to me how un unrepentant this man is. He continues to defend taking down the Babylon Bee account. He wanted to ban the libs of TikTok account, defends to, uh, booting Trump off the platform, basically reveals one to take Trump off the platform 100 days previously to January 6th when he was an active candidate for president of the United States. All Again, these such people, they should not have the power to make this decision at a global level. And I think that perhaps this could be a catalyst for that. I hope so. Let me let me just say one thing, yeah. one more thing about um, what was revealed in these threads and what I think the most important takeaway is. It's that it didn't actually require the government getting mm -hmm. involved for this to be a, an issue. And that's really, to me, you know, the, the crux of the problem here is corporate power. It's monopoly. It's the fact that whether it's Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey or Vijay Agati or Mark Zuckerberg or whoever it is, 
you can't just have all of these decisions, which are really important in terms of having a functioning democracy. I mean, ultimately, that is the reality. It mattered that this New York Post story was censored. God only knows what else they were doing behind the scenes and what information was being suppressed and what was being elevated and all of that. You should not have these really critical and sometimes truly very difficult and very borderline decisions being made in secret by a handful of individuals. At the very least, we should have transparency. Um, and so, you know, there, we're going to get to the, the reaction to this, which was revealing in and of itself. I think Elon, you know, I don't know that he had like pure motives in releasing all of this. I think he was trying to distract from some other stuff. But what does it matter? I mean, I think it is important to have as much information about how all of this works and how it all went down at that time in real time as possible so that we can think more clearly about what the best solutions are to dealing with what is an issue of corporate power, what is an issue of, you know, when you have total lack of transparency and back-channeling from the federal government, which, as we put up the report from Ken Klippenstein, we do know from other reporting was happening in other instances as well. How do we actually deal with that in a democratic society so that we can all have a say in how these lines are drawn and you know what falls on which side of the line. Revenge porn of Hunter Biden, that should be taken down. I don't think anyone serious would argue that you know that should ultimately be left up. The question is, should any of these candidates have special access, special ability to work the refs um, at a company as important as Twitter? I would say that the answer to that is no. Yeah, I completely agree. Okay, let's go to the next part here, which is that you are not going to see nuanced uh, discussion of this from many figures on the left and right-wing media. So we aggregated some of the absolute worst reactions from both sides. One of our favorite segments always to do. Let's put this up there <laughs> on the screen. Here are five of the worst reactions from most embarrassing reactions to the Taibi Twitter thread from Ben Collins. Imagine throwing it all away to do PR work for the richest person in the world. Humiliating shit. Wajat Ali, Matt Taibbi, what sad, disgraceful downfall. I swear, kids, he did good work back in the day. Should be a cautionary tale for everyone. Selling your soul to the richest white nationalist on earth. Oh, that's an interesting one. What he'll eat well for the well, he'll eat well for the rest of his life, I guess. Is it worth it? Mehdi, imagine volunteering to do online PR works for the world's richest person on a Friday night in service of a nakedly cynical right-wing narrative, pretending you're speaking truth to power. Chris Hayes, watching some of the most famous, most powerful, and richest men red pill themselves into disaster. Pretty wild. And then finally, uh, what is that? Watching Matt's unbelievable fall into lazy reactionary commentator and now PR hand for the rarest richest man is depressing. Did they all get the same note or something? Yeah, uh, kind somebody of tweeted something out and then everybody yeah. just ran with it. Man. I mean, what this, NPCs? Is, this is one of the things uh, that bothered me about this reaction is you can feel any way that you want to feel about Matt Taibbi. But first of all, I didn't really, I just genuinely don't understand if you look at this from a principled perspective, how this is, quote, feeding right-wing narratives. I think it's a story about corporate power and abuse. That mm -hmm. seems to me like an American problem, frankly. I mean, it really shouldn't be a left or a right issue. It's something that the Republican base is increasingly concerned about, as we've tracked on this show. Uh, a few Republican elites have at least verbally and rhetorically made some sort of feint towards concern over this as well. You do have a little bit of bipartisan action on uh, antitrust, even though that's still you know, predominantly on the left. But if you just look at this from the principles of it, it I don't understand why this is a quote-unquote right-wing narrative. In fact, Rokana, uh, who we're going to talk to later today, pops up in this chain of files to say, hey, there's, you know, there's real free speech 
concerns here. And I'm concerned about the, the First Amendment, how this is being applied. And oh, by the way, like the way that you're censoring this, I think that you're drawing a lot of attention to something that had the exact opposite intended effect. Um, and I think that's true. I mean, the way they handled this made this story so much more famous and so much bigger than it ultimately would have been had they handled it in like a normal, rational type of way. Yeah, and let me also say on the journalism front, this is just called journalism, folks. Listen, you know, as Matt also put it, you know, are these the same people that are mouthpieces for the CIA and the FBI accusing somebody of doing PR? It's ludicrous. And I don't even think Matt did PR in any way. Yes, look, Elon clearly is a fan of Matt Taibbi for his perspective of being anti-establishment. That's fine. Okay, so what does Matt do? He takes the files. He doesn't immediately release them. Takes 96 hours, calls several sources, doesn't release all the files and mass like a publisher. He actually aggregates and puts out reporting on each individual slide, including information, contextualizes it within a broader narrative. That's called journalism. I mean, what are we pretending that they wouldn't take files from Apple or whomever? Sources always have ideological motivations. You're not doing PR for them whenever you take newsworthy information, add context to it, and put it out into the discourse. As you also say, it's not like it is selectively cherry-picked or edited files. And if it is, then we should be revealed as such to everybody. Yeah. Look, we will find out more soon. Elon said he's also given them over to Barry Weiss. I'm looking forward to reading and to seeing anything newsworthy that these people put out. There's also a new narrative going on right now, Crystal, that uh, these Twitter employees are, quote, being doxxed because their names are out there. Give me a break. Like, you people were some of the most powerful in American politics for a three-month period at the center of a story. You're a public figure now. I'm sorry that your name is out there. However, accountability, responsibility exists. Like, your name was already publicly known, especially Vijay Agade, Yoel Roth, many of these other figures, and any executive who had anything to say in this decision, well, welcome to politics. Like, I don't know what to tell you. You should have gotten an, a different job. Like, the idea that we are, quote, endangering their lives by talking publicly about who these people are. About the are, decisions that they made. You made a decision that was in the public interest. I personally would make it so that you never were in the, uh, you were never in that sphere in the per first place, but you're in it now. So yeah. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, you accepted these positions of power and responsibility and I'm sure the, you know, compensation that came yeah, with exactly. it. And so now you're afraid of like any public scrutiny of your decision making. I, I want to underscore, because I think what you said, Sagar, is really mm. important about the fact that, you know, reporters take information from sources who have an ax to grind and an ideological motivation all the time. Yes, that I would too. All the time. Yeah. I mean, I, the number of stories that reporters are being fed from the Biden team, mm -hmm. from the Trump team, from whoever trying to get out there their narrative and their, you know, ideological narrative. I mean, obviously the deep state is doing this all the time, trying to mold and shape the discourse. And what a good journalist does is they take that information, they consider the source and the acts they have to grind or whatever their ideological inclination is, they balance that against whatever is out there and then they release it to the public um, in a way that you know provides the facts and isn't slanted towards one side or the other. But to, to say like, if your source has some sort of, you know, ax to grind or ideological inclination or some reason, motivation to get this information out there that you should just ignore it and not put it out there, that's just counter to what journalism ultimately is. So I think there was a real, uh, I, I also, I don't understand why there's a freak out about just having the information out there. Mm -hmm. To me, understanding more Seeing in real time, you know, ultimately, it looks like what happened with the Hunter Biden thing was more a story of like 
corporate incompetence and failing to understand the impact of this decision, drew a few ideological actors who sort of like grabbed the reins, an absentee owner. So oftentimes, what looks like more of a grand conspiracy ends up just being like incompetence and a cluster. And that's what I really got out of these files ultimately. And I think it's useful to have that information again, if we're gonna think seriously about how to deal with these problems. At this point, I don't, I have seen very few people who are still willing to defend the actions that mm -hmm. Twitter took with regards to this New York Post story. I. Everybody acknowledges like this was a total disaster. So why wouldn't you want to get under the hood of like, how did this happen so we can make sure that things are handled in a more intelligent, rational and balanced way going forward? Absolutely. So we also have uh, aggregated some humiliating right wing reactions. <laughs> Let's put this up there on the screen. We got some really good ones that our producers put together. The Twitter files prove how radical leftists manipulate policy to silence conservatives. The traitors must need to be investigated immediately. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that the Hunter Biden laptop was suppressed by Twitter in order to help Biden. But it did take a rocket engineer to buy Twitter and to get the files released. So uh, Eric Bullock, great stuff so far. Elon, there are powerful, evil people who don't want this to see the light of day. Keep a watchful eye on your six. I cannot wait for tomorrow's drop. And then finally, truth will ultimately prevail where pain is taken to bring it I mean, I to saw light. people calling for people Biden cheering. to be impeached over this. Right. I saw people saying this was the greatest presidential scandal in the history of the country. I mean, literally, literally they're saying Even this. though Trump was president. Biden wasn't even president then, guys. I mean, it, and the, by the way, the Trump campaign, they may have had less of their requests honored, but they were doing the same shit. Mm -hmm. So what are you gonna do with that? I mean, the, there, the attempt to paint this as like the greatest, most bombshell revelation in the history of the earth was sort of absurd. A lot of this, like I said, was sort of a little more texture on things that we kind of already knew. The biggest original bombshell was just the handling of this uh, laptop material to start with. Uh, in some ways, what comes out of these is, I would say, significantly less of a bombshell than some of the reporting that, say, Ken Klippenstein has ultimately done. So the attempt to be like, oh, my God, this is like Republic ending and Biden needs to be impeached over it. And also, by the way, to totally ignore that the Trump campaign is doing the same thing on the other side was incredibly silly. And then we also have this, uh, my personal favorite. Yeah, this, up is, there this is the really screen. next level. A uh, GOP rep calling for violent or candidate openly calling for violent revolution mm -hmm. over the Hunter Biden laptop now. He says, quote, it is only by bullets now. We so, can no longer get rid okay. of tyranny by the ballots. It's only by bullets now. Everybody cool. just calm down. Uh, yes, we think it's bad. Uh, yes, we are looking at a much deeper conversation around corporate power, et cetera. But uh, I don't think that any of that is necessary. And then finally, uh, you can always leave it to Donald Trump to have the absolute worst reaction to all of this. And he certainly fulfilled everybody's expectations. So let's put this up there on the screen from Truth Social, quote, so with the revelation of massive and widespread fraud and deception and working close with big tech companies, the DNC and the Democratic Party, do you throw the presidential election results of 2020 out and declare the rightful winner? 
Or do you have a new election? A massive fraud of this type and magnitude allows for the termination of all rules, regulations, and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Our great founders, in quotes, did not want and would not condone false and fraudulent elections. Just uh, absolute peak cream from Trump there. Mm. I really don't even know what to say. I mean, I've seen it quite a bit of a media freakout on this. You know what the deeper story is to me? Couldn't even keep his mouth shut for what, two weeks on his insanity? Yeah. It, it's amazing. I, I remember actually saying that during his live stream. I was like, man, this was a boring and a muted speech by Trump. He feels defeated because of the midterm results and clear rejection of MAGA. However, Trump idiocy, you can always bet to surface oh. on a, like he it's like the fight club quote. On a long enough timeline, Trump's idiocy will surface and become the predominant story. Lo and behold, what is the first major story after his election? Nick Fuentes and the Kanye West dinner, and then now called for a suspension of the Constitution to hold a, quote, new election result. Right. I do think it's important. He does believe this shit, people. I mean, I, I think we need to he take that away. is overtly yeah. calling for right. overturning the Constitution. <laughs> and I mean, the most embarrassed, like, I don't think anyone's surprised that he will just casually be like, yeah, let's get rid of right. the Constitution because, you know, Twitter censored an article in a way I didn't like and took down Hunter's dick pics. Mm -hmm. Um but it also really exposes that all, for all this talk of like, oh, Republicans are moving beyond Trump and, you know, DeSantis has a real shot and all this stuff. They didn't have anything to say about this. Well, even these people who are supposed to be moderates, this dude, Republican uh, Ohio Representative Dave Joyce, who's like the head of some like problem solvers type mm -hmm. caucus. It's called something different on the Republican side. But anyway, that type of centrist group, Republican governance group, that's what it's called. He got asked about this on the Sunday shows and he's like, that's eh, not a deal breaker that he says he wants to overturn the Constitution. None of them wanted to say anything about it. And it just shows you, like, the Trump poll is still everything in the GOP. He is still the center of gravity. So even when he says the most unhinged, author like, overtly authoritarian things, they don't have anything to say about it. Yeah, it's just, uh, just the same like people who are like, Biden should be impeached over asking for Hunter dick pics to be taken down when he wasn't even president are silent on the former president being like, let's overturn the Constitution. I also look at it in a more <laughs> meta-political, which is A, he has no discipline, and B, it's like, have fun with that. You know, one of the things I think everybody underestimated in this election was voters' complete and total abhorrence of election denialism, and specifically Trump craziness. Yes. And on this, good luck, Trump. You know, for a while, it did genuinely seem as if you were Teflon, but Americans seemed finally to just say like, no, we've actually had enough. Personally, I think it's because people took it seriously. You know, previously Trump would say crazy stuff, but it was, you know, the, the actual impact of it, nobody knew. Everybody watched January 6th. More importantly, I think everybody saw that if he had the ability to overturn the election, he absolutely would have done, done it. Absolutely. And so then people are like, okay, I have no choice but to take this seriously because it's backed up by action and it's backed up by concerted political movement to set up the infrastructure to try and deny the results of the 2020 election. 2022 election should, it, or 2024, should it go against the desired result? And so voters acted accordingly. Now you're out there talking about suspending the constitution. I just simply have no choice but to conclude, based on the election results, that people think this one hits differently than stuff that he used to say in 2016 and even before January 6th in 2020. I, I think that's a great point. Yeah. I think that's a great point. And you could see the more that candidates snuggled up to him and embraced mm -hmm. that kind of rhetoric, the more they were punished at the polls in state after state. But they still won Republican primaries. I mean, that's and that's the problem the yeah. Republican Party is dealing with right now is I think for a general electorate, 
it's right. it's a deal killer, right? I mean, even if Biden is in a stronger position at this point, but even if he is like significantly weakened going into the next round, people are going to look at this kind of insanity. And he is significantly more unhinged, like by the week too, like, you know, posting QAnon crap and just very disconnected, like in this echo chamber, hard fringe echo chamber where you end up having dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. I think it's a problem for the general election. For the, you know, for the primaries, Clearly, you can see in the lack of response to this type of rhetoric and the lack of response to the, the Kanye Nick Fuentes dinner, um, there are attempts to continue the same strategy of like, let's just try not to talk about this dude, that they have not, he is not, his hold on the party is far from broken. So interesting how all of this has unfolded. Absolutely. All right. Another story that we felt we needed to weigh in on uh, related to all of this, because ultimately, you know, there's a theory out there, which I think has some merit that part of why Elon wanted to release these Twitter files now is to distract from the fact that he had banned Kanye West, which seems kind of anti-free speech, although, you know, we'll get into that piece in a moment. But the reason this all came about right now is because Kanye West, now yay, went on Alex Jones's show along with his new buddy, Nick Fuentes. And there was no beating around the bush. There was no plausible deniability. There was no anything. He just literally goes full Nazi, repeatedly says how much he loves Hitler, why he loves Hitler, why he loves Nazis. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. I've done a lot of study. I think Hitler was a really bad guy and I repudiate what Hitler did. I understand that the British intelligence set him up and used I, him. I, I like Hitler. I, I don't like Hitler. And I know you're trying to be shocking, but that I'm not trying to be shocking. I like Hitler. I do not. I the the Holocaust is not what happened. Let's look at the facts of that. And Hitler has a lot of redeeming qualities. This is the voice of Netanyahu. Well, CNN says why people are evil Nazis. So I mean, I I, I disagree with both statements, but I get the yeah, I, don't, I don't like the word evil next to Nazis. I think we need to look at. <laughs> Um, and, and the Nazis, in my view, were thugs that shut people down to a lot of really bad things. But they did good things, too. We're going to stop dissing the Nazis all the time. Okay. I'm, ne I'm Netanyahu. I ain't never had a supermodel. Yeah, could tell. Uh, <laughs> the Jewish media has made us feel like the Nazis and Hitler have never offered anything of value to the world. Okay, well, why would the Zionists be killing Jews in mass in Israel with the poison shot? Because they work for Satan. They don't work for God. Exactly. And uh, you've got a little bit of the Hitler fetish going on. It's not a fetish. It's not a fetish. That's a term like I I just love information. Can we just kind of say like you like the you like the uniforms, but that's about no, it. No, we we no. I th there's a lot of things that I love about Hitler. A lot of things. Hey, uh, Netan, what did you think about that, Netan? This is insane. You are an insane person. Love but that's a good T-shirt. I love Hitler. That's a bar. That's a bar. I'm joking. What? Germans had a really cool leader at one time. Oh my God. And he didn't kill six million Jews. That's just like factually incorrect. But for the ADL, I want to say there's a lot of good Nazis that were just fighting for their country and for them all. Like George Soros. For them all to get put in a box. They're all in a box. Every Nazi is bad. Well, could some of the Nazis have just been fighting for their country? Oh, they're all. Oh, we can't. We can't put them all in a box. Benjamin Netanyahu played Kanye West today. Hey, man, what you want? Hey, yay. Wow. Goes without saying. This is disgusting. It's deplorable. It's historically uh, wrong. I mean, the Nazism is perhaps the most evil ideology that human beings have ever come up with. Um, Hitler was a depraved killer. The Holocaust was real. Yes, six million Jews were murdered in the Holocaust. It's in and it's also patently insane. For those of you who are just listening to this, just to, to paint the picture here, 
Ye is sitting there with a full black hood over his face. So you can't even see his face, by the way. The weird like voice that he's doing, he brought a net and a bottle. Yeah, is that a fishbowl net? Like, what is that? Yes, yeah, something okay. like that. And a bottle of Yoohoo chocolate milk. And he's saying that this is uh, former and about to be future Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netin, Netin, oh, Yahoo, Yoohoo. Insane. He's, who he says, by the way, is trying to murder him. And I mean, Part of what I think is worth saying at this point is number one, please stop. Please stop having this man on. This, I mean, this is all that you're gonna get, right? Lex Friedman tried him, talk him off the ledge. Can we talk about individual people? Can we talk about like the facts of what happened to you rather than broad brush demonizing an entire group of people, which is absolutely deplorable and disgusting. He complained about that in this interview. He is given every chance by Alex Jones, who's really trying to give him away out of this. He's, you just like the uniforms, right? No, I love Hitler, he says, right? You, you know, I don't like, he, Alex Jones tries, I don't like Nazis. I think the mainstream media, blah, 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 goes in his own conspiracy theories. No, I love Nazis. I mean, okay, so we know what he's gonna say at this point. Please stop having this man on because he's also, and this doesn't excuse the behavior or the hatred or the disgusting views, he is clearly in the middle of a manic uh, episode he has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And Sagar, just to read to you a few of the hallmarks of bipolar disorder, mm -hmm. of which he is clearly having a textbook uh, uh, media episode on you know, all of these interviews. Feeling unusually important, talented, or powerful is one indication. Feeling able to do many things at once without getting tired. Racing thoughts, talking fast about a lot of different things, so-called flight of ideas, okay? This is a man who is mentally ill, if you saw him on the street, you would know that. If he was anything other than this sort of like celebrity god who we've been taught to look up to, like they're so special and like, oh, they won the meritocracy race, so they must be a genius. If it was anything other than that, we would see this so clearly for ultimately what it is. Again, that does not excuse the deplorable, disgusting views. But what are, what are we gonna get at this point from doing another interview with Ye West? This is who he is. Yeah, no, he's clearly had like a massive psychotic break. And I was gonna say thank you to the person who put that compilation clip together. And just to underscore it, I mean, to the crazy posting, it continues. You know, on Instagram, yeah. just late last night, he posted this quote, am I the only one who thinks Elon could be half Chinese? Have you ever seen his pics as a child? Take a Chinese genius and mate them with a South African supermodel. We have Elon. I say Elon because they probably made 10 to 30 Elons. He's the genetic hybrid that's stuck. Well, let's not forget about Obama. I'm sorry for using curse words in church. I don't have another word for Obama yet. Yay 24, let's unify and find out. L-U-A-F-O. I mean, look, as you said, like it's almost difficult to be outraged at hearing such thing just because you can see how much in the midst of like a genuine psychotic break that the man is. Like, yeah. you know, disgusting and deplorable views aside. And I honestly just felt like uh, watching him actually be used by these cynical grifting actors like Fuentes and Milo, that is a level of you know of, of deplorable that is just far outracing almost even Kanye himself. Con Candace as well, effectively like stealing his money, right? Yeah. Getting his her husband's company like bailed out by Kanye West yeah. to purchase Parlor. By the way, that deal fell apart yeah, no, at this yeah, point. Yeah. I mean, oh, attempted stealing yeah. his money and grifting onto him. Also, uh, Milo, it turns out, 
either somebody's had enough, we'll see, put this up there on the screen. He is officially leaving the campaign. He says, Ye and I have come to the mutual conclusion. I should step away from his political team. Ye is a genius who I have come to love and respect. We remain friends. I will continue to pray for Ye and all of his endeavors. Yes, he certainly will. I mean, that's the thing, is if you, if your whole business model is provocation, mm -hmm. someone is always going to be able to out-provoke you. Of course. And I mean, that's part of what comes through in these clips too with Alex Jones. Because, I mean, to make Alex Jones squirm in his chair and try to like, and be the, the moderate and right. try to get you to walk back from the ledge of the total insanity that you're spewing is really something. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, there's always gonna be someone who's willing to go full Nazi. Apparently that person is Ye West and more pointedly, Nick Fuentes, who you don't hear from him in that uh, compilation, but he's just sitting there smiling and nodding the whole time. The whole time. And so apparently, I mean, I guess this was even too far for Milo Yiannopoulos, who, again, his whole thing has always been being the conservative provocateur. But, yeah, if that's your whole business model is just shocking people, there's always going to be someone who's willing to push the envelope a little bit further than you are. And ultimately, you know, the, the gig is going to be up. So... Uh, disgraceful for Milo, disgraceful for Nick Fuentes, not that they had any shame to start with. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, of course. They have zero shame. In fact, this is their only last chance of getting anybody to even say their name on television. So good luck, folks. Uh, I think your gig will be up in, what, two weeks or so, eventually before the psychotic break continues yeah. and they get fired, disgraced in public. As for Kanye himself, the man needs help. He's not going to reach it. You know, at this point, I doubt it's even possible unless it's genuinely forced upon him. As I understand, the laws on that are actually quite difficult. And of course, he has a ton of money at his disposal. So he's his own worst enemy. He's the person, as you said, you said this before. You're like, look, the man says, I refuse to take my meds. So what are you supposed to do right. in a situation? I personally think, as you said, after the Lex Friedman interview, and especially after walking off the Tim Pool interview with Tim, it was like the slightest pushback. Right. And, and he walks off the set. I'm like, yeah. look, What's the point at this point? You know, let them let him languish in his psychotic, you know, manic episode. He can continue to post his way to idiocy. Now, that said, on a content moderation scheme, there is some more uh, to be discussed. Yes. So uh, let's go ahead and put this next part up on the screen. Um, so it is uh, <laughs> after this interview, um, Kanye tweeted a symbol that included a swastika. And his account was suspended uh, by Elon Musk on Twitter. Now, the backstory here is that uh, Elon had just brought him back and has, you know, had this sort of blanket amnesty for people. And so Kanye had just been brought back on to the platform. And then he tweets this out. And there was also some uh, sort of back and forth between them that was also released their text messages where Elon's basically like, OK, you went too far. And my understanding, I don't know if this is still the case, is that this was a temporary suspension mm -hmm. because of the tweeting of the swastika. Now, obviously, everybody here finds the use of this hate symbol to be utterly abhorrent. It is not something that you should share. It is uh, disgusting. You know, it it is uh, something that it, it's just completely deplorable. It is a hate symbol. In the way that he used it specifically. Yes. Like, he didn't use it as the Hindu symbol, okay, for the folks yes. who are out there trying to be contrarian. He put it inside of a Jewish star. I think it was pretty damn clear what he was trying to get to. However, right. uh, Elon has portrayed himself as a free speech absolutist. So what does that actually mean? Well, we'll get to this in a, in a minute, but as abhorrent and hateful as the sharing of a swastika is, it has actually been ruled by the Supreme Court as protected 
free speech. So we'll get to that in a minute. Musk was asked to justify uh, Kanye's suspension. He says he did it because the swastika image was an incitement of violence and suggests it was a violation of U.S. law. Uh, and the, the commentary here is that swastikas are obviously problematic symbols, but I'm not aware that sharing them is a violation of any U.S. law. And in fact, that it is not. If we put up this next piece, I mean, this is the most famous ACLU case mm -hmm. of all time, where you had uh, lawyers at the ACLU, many of whom were Jewish, by the way, who defended the right of the American Nazi pa uh, Party to march and display the swastika in Skokie, Illinois. Um, you know, this is was a, a town that had many Jewish people in it, so this was obviously a disgusting and inflammatory display by the American Nazi Party, an abhorrent, disgusting group of people. But ultimately, the Supreme Court ruled on the side of the American Nazi Party and their right to march and to display the swastika even though these are hate symbols, even though it is hate speech, and even though it is disgusting. Let me just read you um, some of the specifics here. They say the ACLU famously defended the American Nazi Party's ability to protest in Skokie, Illinois, including the display of swastikas. The Supreme Court has struck down laws that have restricted offensive speech, such as the wearing of swastikas in Village of Skokie versus National Socialist Party of America. But in a separate case, Virginia versus Black, the Supreme Court declined to rule that cross-burning was protected expressive speech under the First Amendment when such an activity was intended to intimidate, reason, reasoning that sometimes it can constitute a true threat. Mm -hmm. So that just gives you a little bit more background of where the Supreme Court has drawn the line. So if you are a free speech absolutist, if you're saying I am going to run this platform consistent with the First Amendment and protection of free speech, this action against Kanye, even though what he tweeted is disgusting and deplorable, not something that anyone should defend, is not consistent with those principles. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why it was important that we both set it up with talking about how abhorrent, ridiculous, and disgusting his views are. However, if Elon does say he's a free speech absolutist, this does violate a free speech absolutist policy. And it highlights exactly what we were talking about in the Twitter files, because when Elon was asked why this was an incitement to violence, he said, well, I felt incited to violence when I saw his tweet. It's like, well, now you're actually just saying that everything is up to you. Look, you're not gonna see widespread crying about this. And I, that's why you know it feels somewhat uncomfortable even to have to even point this out. But it does show you that principles matter for a reason, as the ACLU showed us in the Skokie case in the first place, which is trying to strike down and set a broad-based standard that can never be used against any dissenting group in the future. Often is happens in the edge cases, in areas where everybody can almost universally agree that it shouldn't exist, and yet that does not mean that the government itself can use those policies to quash speech that it just certainly doesn't like, even when it is abhorrent as the American Nazi party. So it's a complicated situation, but I think it highlights again, even with Elon buying it, like it's still up to him. He says, because yeah. he felt incited to violence. Like, what does that even mean? That he, doesn't mean anything. He said something similar about his yeah. decision to keep Alex Jones banned. Mm. He also based it on what was a tragic personal experience for Elon of losing his first child as a baby. And so he said, you know, anyone, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically like anyone who would, uh, you know, have anything to say about children and cover this up, like that's just, I can't go there. So again, it was right. like his own personal view of what crossed the line. And that's why, listen guys, you're not gonna find your answers in any particular person or billionaire, even ones that claim to be free speech absolutists. I do think because he did, 
you know, it is not a comfortable thing to defend, you know, Kanye West posting a freaking swastika on Twitter. But Elon was taking some heat and criticism over this from some of the people who have been allies of his. And so I do think that might have been one of the reasons why he decides to ultimately put out these Twitter files. That was one of the things that Glenn Greenwald suggested, mm. among others. Um, but that could have been the motivation for the timing right now because it gets you talking about, okay, well, what was re revealed and what happened with the Hunter Biden stuff. That doesn't mean that, you know, Taibbi shouldn't have covered it or put it out right. into the uh, information ecosystem. But I do think that might have been part of the motivation for why right now they release these files. I think that's right. Uh, I just want to say again, like, it's not comfortable to sit here and talk about how this violates like First Amendment speech, but yeah. that doesn't mean that it's not important. And I don't think anyone well, should construe it as a defense of the swastika I, I, or the American Nazi Party yes. or Kanye West, but simply to say that there is a much larger principle here that is involved, and that's exactly what I want it taken out of the hands of these people yes. for an individual decision. And it's when the principle is uncomfortable Discuss that it the matters the most. Yeah. That's when it actually matters. In clear-cut cases, then, you know, it's easy and, you know, the public will be 100 percent behind you. I have no doubt that if you poll the American public about like, you know, should be cut your West be banned or a swastika, probably we were very much on the mm -hmm. minority side of that view. But again, that's when ultimately like having the bedrock principles and having them consistently adjudicated and having some sort of a democratic process involved matters the most. Yep. Enough talking about Nazis, I think, hmm. for today. Uh, let's talk about the uh, moves made by the DNC and the Biden team to uh, make it easier for him to win the nomination, potentially set things up for Kamala Harris, although I continue to be a little bit skeptical of that one. Let's go ahead and put this New York Times tear sheet up on the screen. Democrats move a step closer to making South Carolina their first primary. So ever since the... <laughs> Uh, Iowa disaster of the last primary, which I'm sure you all probably remember well. They screwed up the counting. It was a, a total cluster, uh, just a, a mess all the way around. And then you layer on top of that that Iowa is this very white state and small population. It's the state Democrats don't really win anymore, even though, you know, in theory they should be able to. There's been discussion about changing the order of the primary states and about demoting Iowa in particular. So what the Biden team has been pushing for is a calendar that they think will be the absolute best for them and for Joe Biden getting the Democratic nomination again, which, side note, I think should tell you everything you need to know about his intentions to run again. The man yeah. is clearly going to run for president again. So where it looks like things are landing after a day-long gathering of the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee is that South Carolina will replace Iowa as the very first uh, voting location. That would happen on February 3rd. Then, very quickly afterwards, you would have New Hampshire and Nevada. So South Carolina's on February 3rd. New Hampshire and Nevada would be on February 6th. Then again, very quickly after that, on February 13th, you would have Georgia and then Michigan on February 27th. So just so, you know, if you've forgotten the uh, Democratic primary results from last time, which, you know, are unfortunately burned into my head for the end of time, <laughs> Joe Biden did horrifically in Iowa, did horrifically in New Hampshire. He did a little bit better in Nevada, and then he absolutely romps in South Carolina, and then he's off to the races for Super Tuesday. So very clear why he would want to have South Carolina first. It is the state in the country where he feels like he has the strongest base of support, so he could start off there. 
New Hampshire has in their constitution that they have to go early and be like the first caucus state. So I think they felt like they kind of had to keep New Hampshire uh, up early in the process, even though he did very poorly there. But he matches it with Nevada, which is another state that he felt like he did pretty well in and has strong union support there, et cetera. Then you go to Georgia, another southern state where he feels he'll do well, and Michigan, uh, you know, Rust Belt state where he also feels like he's pretty confident. So it's just blatant rigging. I mean, that's really no, what, there's straight. really no other way to, to put it, ultimately. They are setting up the states in exactly precisely the order and the pace that he thinks will be best for him personally. Yeah, and you found this, let's put this next one up there on the screen, which is actually also gives Kamala Harris an edge in a future White House bid with putting South Carolina up first. And we're not even making this a race thing. And part of the reason why is that the South Carolina primary, by and large, over time, has heavily favored establishment candidates. Now, why do I say that? Well, let's go to C3, and this is why it was important. Barack Obama actually trailed Hillary Clinton in South Carolina until he won the Iowa caucuses, meaning that a lot of voters there felt that they could not back Obama until he legitimized himself in another context. If the South Carolina primary had gone first in 2008, Hillary Clinton would clearly have been the nominee in 2008. It is blatant and always has much more of an establishment lean in the beginning, although they have changed their mind after results in Iowa and New Hampshire, as we also saw in the 2020 uh, primary for the Democrats. Given Pete Buttigieg's actually general overperformance, even though he did terrible in South Carolina, he did better than he probably would have if he hadn't had a better showing in Iowa. The point is, is that I'm not saying Iowa and New Hampshire are perfect, but that the South Carolina being first effectively is a world where Barack Obama is never president of the United States. Should we not consider that? And with Kamala, the reason why it benefits her is not because of her race, but because of her establishment status, yes. because people like Jim Clyburn and whoever his political heirs in the state are would go to ride, uh, run up and back her would give her a major edge in that primary and in the future uh, momentum. And you can just imagine the headlines like when you win your first contest, it gives you major momentum. It makes it feel as if wind is at your back when in reality, the race could go totally differently by putting a different state at the very top. It is crazy to think about how much the ordering of states ultimately matters so much. really matters. Yeah. And um, I think your point about the establishment you know, uh, benefit for our, uh, for candidates in South Carolina is really important because it's not like Kamala did was doing well in South Carolina before mm -hmm. she dropped down this race last time. I went back and looked at the real clear politics averages of the polls in the different states. The highest she ever notched in South Carolina was eight points. But again, that's because she wasn't like Joe Biden was there. He was the establishment candidate. He had been Barack Obama's bestie and vice president and all of that. So he was just unshakable in terms of the South Carolina electorate. Jim Clyburn obviously had a lot of sway and a lot of pull in the state. So when he decides, all right, I'm with Joe, all the chips sort of, you know, all the pieces sort of fall into place there. And, you know, I mean, there's there's a few other things to say. I mean, number one, not good for Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> who's clearly been sort of positioning himself and trying to angle himself into his next White House bid, starting with South Carolina. Pete famously could not get any significant percentage of any minority vote. And so starting with South Carolina and Nevada is, you know, kind of a disaster for him. Uh, the other thing that you can say about it is it's not just the order of the states that matter. It's also the pace. Mm -hmm. So one of the things about Iowa that has been, I mean, this is like bedrock political tradition, whether you like it or not, like this has been the way we've done politics, is it's a relatively small state. 
you know, it's a, rel it's a pretty rural state. Candidates would make a show of going to all the different counties, showing up at all the different like Democratic Party meet and greets and functions and what used to be called Jefferson Jackson dinners. I don't remember what they mm -hmm. call them now. Um, and you could be a candidate that didn't have a lot of money and didn't, you know, have a gigantic national profile to start with. And you could gain some ground just you shoe leather, you know, with your shoe leather, like getting around the state and showing up at all the things and talking to the voters and like building a thing for yourself. And so when you have four states here going really quickly in succession within basically a week, if you're a candidate that doesn't have a lot of money in the bank, it makes it very difficult for you ultimately to compete. So you're not going to have time to prove yourself in Iowa, build a war chest and go on to the other states. It really benefits candidates who already have big national profile, big war chests and are able to come out and have a ground operation in all of these states at once from the get-go. So that's the other piece of this. I mean, it really is quite a sea change in terms of democratic politics. This isn't set in stone. There may be some changes still, but it looks like this is dir the direction they're going in, and it is a quite extraordinary change from the past. Well, it's a genius ploy. You'd be like, what, you're against black voters? It's like, no, that's not what anybody's saying. What right. somebody's saying is that clearly it has an establishment bias, always has in the future, and that if you want upstart candidates to have a chance, having a smaller state, maybe it doesn't have to necessarily be Iowa. It could be Nevada. You know, Nevada's not that big. Really, it's just a it's a lot of campaigning in uh, in Las Vegas and yeah. then in Reno. So it's like actually could give you more of a benefit. Also, it's got Hispanic voters, a swing demographic right now, heavy union presence. I could make just as good of an argument for the Democrats to hold it there than in South Carolina, but there's a reason why they want South Carolina to go first. I see it as nothing but a rigging for Joe Biden and for Kamala and really establishment from here on out. And you are not going to hear any dissent in the media on this going forward. Yes, very, very true. Um, there was one more piece of this that we found interesting. Uh, Charlamagne the God always has interesting uh, political commentary. Yeah. Sometimes cringe, sometimes go great. Goes against the grain yeah. oftentimes. And he had some uh, comments about, you know, there's, there's an assumption, I guess, in this ordering of states from the DNC and the Biden campaign that uh, black voters are gonna continue to be just a rock solid uh, demographic for Joe Biden. And you know, first he said, uh, you might wanna, he's sort of saying you might wanna rethink that. He says, personally, damn near everything they promised black people, I haven't seen come to fruition. I still think they could have gone way further on the marijuana thing. Hey, it's cool to pardon everybody that's in prison on a federal level for simple possession, but indicating they could have done a lot more. And he went on to express that he is not too impressed with Joe Biden and is apparently even less impressed with Kamala Harris, but continues to think uh, Biden is the best bet the Democrats have. Let's take a listen to what he had to say sad that you know you're talking about a, a potential rematch with you know an individual who's facing multiple you know federal and local investigations uh, a, a person who they say inspired an attempted coup in this country on january 6th you know um, a, a person who tried to you know basically change you know to uh 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 still change the results of an election like just wouldn't acknowledge the results of of an election i feel like there have to be some type of qualifications for president i think when you're facing you know that much i don't even think you should be qualified to run and so it's sad that we're saying you know it's still a toss-up between him uh president biden i, I think that's more in indicative of what you know democrats aren't doing and, and for me i just don't, i don't i don't see the bench that the democrats have like i don't 
I personally don't see the the person that they could put up in 2024 that could like really galvanize and and energize people. I mean, the fact that Biden is still their safest bet, I ugh, I think that's sad too. So he's not too impressed. No, not at all. I mean, look, I. Again, with Charlemagne, uh, he both was like, what, a fan of Kamala Harris, but then he also did rightfully critique her whenever she mm -hmm. tried to skip out on his interview. I've always appreciated him. What was it, P. Diddy, um, in our previous, in the previous 2020, when he would came out and he was like, we're not just gonna, you know, the black vote is in monolithic, like we're not just gonna show up on Biden. As it relates to South Carolina and to more, I'm just not so sure. I mean, I would wish that Charlemagne's view were the mainstream. That said, like, look how they voted for Biden in 2020 mm -hmm. on the word of Jim Jim Clyburn endorsing him. It was like Clyburn's word alone was enough for a major landslide victory for Biden, enough to clinch the nomination, especially going into Super Tuesday. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he also made some comments um, about, <laughs> he was asked again, this is a Fox News digital interview, by the way, it was asked again about Biden's famous you mm -hmm. ain't black comment. And he said basically that he had said the quiet part out loud. Um, whether he said it in jest or not, I'm sure that's how a large part of the Democratic Party feels. They feel like, hey, black men, black women, they're our most loyal voting bloc, and they show up for us no matter what. So um, some pointed critiques there of Charlemagne. I mean, listen, I think anytime you take voters for granted and just assume that they're going to have your back without ultimately delivering for them, I think ultimately there's going to be a price to pay. Yeah. And I do think Democrats are seeing that with working class voters, um, black and brown voters in particular. Uh, the place where Republicans have actually gained the most ground across the country are in cities with uh, black and brown working class voters. I don't think that it's because Republicans have been so awesome. Um, I think it's because Democrats have routinely failed uh, these groups and working class in general. So um, bit of you know, bit of a warning there. I agree with you in the short term, probably South Carolina will continue to be a solid place for establishment candidates. But bigger picture, it is just so brazen how the Democratic Party is trying to shore up the wall, make sure Biden has a glide path to the nomination, make sure that they can even lay out the, the path for their next terrible lackluster candidate, Kamala Harris, and continue their sort of like status quo uh, dominance in perpetuity. Yes, absolutely. Okay, let's go to the next part. This is an SBF update, which is very important, is going really unnoticed by the mainstream media. The crypto media is actually the one who picked up on it. So let's give credit where due. Let's put this up there on screen. So they show that SBF actually had detailed information on Alameda Research's finances as recently as March, according to Forbes. Now, why does this matter? Because SBF was such a narcissist that he actually compiled a Google Doc mm -hmm. with his own net worth calculated by his own uh, basically analysis that was sent over to Forbes. Now, that Google Doc, which had a sum of some 30-some billion dollars, according to his net worth, uh, then for the total market, listed in detail the balance sheet and more, both of FTX, of his own personal wealth, and Alameda Research Funds directly under management. Why does that matter? Because the commingling of FTX and Alameda assets are exactly what led to the downfall of FTX in the first place after a run on the FTT token. Now, let's remember, in the New York Times interview with SBF, the insane interview which we covered here, he said, quote, it is not a company I run about Alameda. Quote, it's not a company I've run for the last couple of years. Quote, and Alameda's finances I was not deeply aware of. I was only surface level aware of Alameda's finances. Now, here's the thing. 
when you actually look at his ownership stake of 90% of Alameda Research and then the 50% of FTX, he actually had that Google sheet which listed directly the assets and the specific coins on the FTX equity in addition to Alameda and its total net worth that he ascribed to himself. He said the Alameda funds under management approximately down to the cent level of what they have. Now, how can you have down to the cent level unless you know what the underlying assets are there. He could claim that he got it from Alameda. I guess that's certainly possible. But again, like that is when you have a number that is in front of you about the total worth, and clearly as he has also compiled his own FTX equity, he listed out Solana, FTT token, the uh, Serum ecosystem token. I don't even know what that one is. Apparently it was worth $3 billion in March, which is amazing. Um, FTX equity. But when you have the $37 billion that he listed on Alameda funds that were totally under management and then putting your net worth at $16 billion, you clearly had a view at least somewhere mm -hmm. on some spreadsheet of what exact assets under management that Alameda actually had. And also there's a question here as to, is this really all it takes to get on the Forbes list? We're talking about a Google sheet <laughs> with six columns in it, and it just comes out and spits out like 30 billion. And Forbes just prints like SBF on the Forbes network. It's like, what? That's all it takes it's also, to get on the Forbes list? It's also very revealing. The yeah. type of person who would be like trying to get on right. the Forbes billionaire right. list and like working the numbers and working the reps right. and spending the, sending them, like wasting your time when you could have been figuring out that your company was about to collapse. <laughs> Instead, going back and forth with Forbes about what your theoretical net worth was, which ended up being uh, less than nothing. But yeah, in that interview we played with Andrew Ross Irk in the New York Times, it was very, his classic defense over and over again was like, oh, I just didn't know. I had no idea. I had no idea. Yeah. I, I didn't even know we gave, you know, we yep. bought this multi, multi-million dollar house, beach house for my parents. I had no idea. Mm -hmm. uh, what happened to the money after the collapse when like assets were being basically, you know, ripped out of FTX? Oh, I, have no, I have no idea what happened to that. I, I didn't even know we had this kind of exposure with Alameda. I didn't really know what Alameda was doing. Right. This just shows you proof positive in case there was any doubt that he is 100% full of shit. I mean, we can go back to some very basic and old concepts here. When it comes to SBF, he is a con man. That's it. Like, you don't really need to understand anything deeper than this. All of this, there's some people still, after that interview, mm -hmm. um, were yeah. like, I think he's telling the truth. I believed what he said. I think he just, you know, got in over, got in over his head and he was out over his skis and the whole thing crumbled and he just made a couple of basic mistakes and didn't pay attention to the risk the way that he should, but it was an honest mistake. No, 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 no. In case you needed any proof, you've got it yes. here. Yes, and Forbes actually even says, the level of detail that Bankman-Fried has, Bankman <laughs> has provided to Forbes over the years shows he had detailed knowledge of some Alameda holdings and at least some knowledge of the transactions it was making, especially in 2021, despite stepping back from running the hedge fund after co-founding FTX in 2019. So it is this was clear his as day. baby. I, I mean, yeah, it was, it was where the bulk yeah. of his net worth, you know, a huge portion of his net worth was coming 
coming from, you know, 90% total ownership. Like the idea that you would own 90% of something and not have a quote detailed understanding of what's going on is And run totally by his ludicrous. girlfriend right. or ex-girlfriend or whatever. I mean, right. this, we're not talking about like a huge group of people that were running these things. Mm -hmm. He was clearly Living very here. deep yeah. into the day-to-day -day details of what exactly they're doing. Remember, there was also reporting that there was like a back door between FDX and Alameda that basically only he had access to. So um, so anyway, he, he knew what was going on. He knew what was going on. And um, this also may end up being relevant in a court case in terms of his Very timeline so. and some of the things that he has been saying, which appear to be patently untrue. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, he's been granting interviews all over the place. Uh, he had one with a uh, editor at large at The Block, a two hour interview. Frank Chaparro, which apparently just posted Unusual Whales, apparently is doing a uh, an interview with him today. The Wall Street Journal has doing an interview. I mean, really, <laughs> all he continued, the Wall Street Journal just dropped one from yesterday. Oh, interesting. Headline was, FTX founder says he can't account for the billions that were sent to Alameda. He said, quote, I have little insight into the workings of the trading firm, even though he know. owned 90% of it. No so idea. his new line is, I had no idea FTX was you know sending all these customer funds over to Alameda when I I just, I simply don't believe that based upon the fact that he is able to provide an accounting of that when Forbes wants to put him on the billionaire mm -hmm. list. He's like, oh, and now actually I know exactly how much money they have because now I own 50% of it or 90% of it. And you know, you should use that in my net worth calculation. Very interesting yes. how that all happens. Indeed. All right. We have a, an interesting story for you. Just an interesting story, but also uh, the way the media covered it is yep. also very interesting. So let's actually put the third element here up on the screen first, guys. E3. Um, so I got all these alerts, Sagar news alerts, yesterday mm -hmm. saying that Iran was shutting down their morality police. It was being disbanded. And the headlines were incredibly unequivocal. So we have a few of them uh, up on the screen. We say, one says Iran has abolished the morality police. Uh, an official suggests in the New York Times, Fox News says Iran shuts down morality police in response to protests, colon report. Iran's shutting down morality police. So the way the headlines made it sound very clear. And in fact, put the second uh, second element now up on the screen. This is from Yashar Ali, who the first headline from the New York Times was even more unequivocal. It says Iran abolishes morality police after months of reports. Yep. Doesn't say an official said they did that. They might have done it. They could potentially be doing none of that. Just totally unequivocal. They are abolishing the morality police. And clearly, I mean, this is a huge story. We have covered here incredible protests across the country, you know, really persistent, massive crackdown with protesters being killed. All of this happening within Iran. So this shows that, you know, oh, wow, they're, they're getting some traction. The government is being forced mm -hmm. to respond. And I still think that the kernel of that is likely true. But the way this was covered was incredibly irresponsible. Let's go ahead and put this up on the screen. So you have a journalist here who is saying, uh, here's a thread about responsible journalism, which is based on responsible sourcing. The comments on the alleged abolishment of the morality police stem from the Iranian regime's attorney general, Mohammad Jafar Montazeri. Let's break down what he actually said in official Iranian state media. And I'm going to go ahead and read this whole thread uh, that she ultimately put out. 
Uh, so this official said the following, the morality police has nothing to do with the judiciary system, the same source that created in the past from the same place it has shut down. Of course, the judiciary system will continue its surveillance <laughs> of social behaviors across society. So even the official who's saying, oh, we're getting rid of the morality police is saying, we're still, we're still going to enforce the law. Nothing is really going to change. We're just basically changing the name of it and the way that the enforcement happens. Um, then she links to uh, a source here from BBC Persian. Then she says, given the above, we know Montessori is not in charge, by the way, of the regime's morality police. Montessori does not specify who allegedly shut down the morality police and when and how. Montessori promises to continue enforcement of the country's Islamic Sharia laws. Editorially, it is not clear why New York Times and other media outlets have chosen to draw definitive conclusions from Montessori's words, who admits he's not in a position to do so, characterize it as a victory for feminists when Montessori says social surveillance would continue. In conclusion, it is lazy journalism at best and camouflaged lobbying at worst. So, you know, New York Times in particular, but a bunch of outlets declaring as fact that the morality police has been abolished showing that, you know, the government is under pressure, that they're caving to demands, that this is a clear victory for the feminists who've been protesting in Iran when the reality is much more opaque and much less clear. Well, here's even better. So last night, that, that same attorney general whose comments they ran, he says, quote, no official authority in the Islamic Republic has confirmed the closure of the morality police. So, like, I wish it were true. You know, I see stuff like this all the time. Yeah. It's a good example of how the Western media gets totally played by a lot of these... Uh, right now, there's a lot of stories like China possibly loosening COVID zero. We'll see. All right, maybe. Or yeah. maybe they're leaking it to get the Western press off their backs and portray it as some sort of victory, and then they come in and sweep in whenever that media doesn't pay attention as much yeah. anymore. Ever seen that happen in China? I certainly have with the Hong Kong protests. And now here, I think, is the exact same thing. Whenever, uh, look, if it's actually true, we will find out. Will the hijab laws in Iran actually be enforced or will they be changed? Again, we will see. And then will they be changed on paper and then enforced differently in the streets? Again, we will see. To go ahead and to report this as statement as total fact without any of the context of how the Iranian regime itself works, who this person is, the fact is BBC Persia seems to be the only outlet that actually nailed this from the beginning. Yes. yeah. In the West, I, they failed. Now, totally. after pushback, I have seen outlets, like I was reading an Economist story this morning mm -hmm. that provided more of the context and more of the nuance, more of the uncertainty about what this actually means and whether it's real or not. Because clearly the initial like, it's done, congratulations, way to go, guys, was met with massive pushback um, from this journalist and from, I'm sure, others, including Iranian protesters who are there on the ground. One thing we do know, according to the protesters, is that um, the morality police have been much less visible and present over the past few weeks. I think it is safe to say, based on them even claiming that they're going to get rid of the morality police, that they are—I mean, they're definitely feeling pressure. There's no doubt about that. But whether this amounts to any sort of a substantive victory is highly in doubt at best. And again— this official, by his own words, I mean, they're not planning on getting rid of the hijab law. Mm -hmm. they're, they're not even claiming that that's what they're doing. They're just saying we're going to still enforce it, but through uh, a different mechanism, ultimately. So even in the uh, best case scenario of they are actually getting rid of the morality police, they're just saying, we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to do it in a little bit of a, a different way and try to claim this as, oh, congratulations, you won, when it's not, in fact, a substantive victory. Yeah, I think that's correct.
All right, Saga, what are you looking at? Well, a consistent theme that I've attempted to hammer home here on the show is that the so-called highest institutions of learning in the U.S. have long departed their mission statements. They are effectively recession-proof industries set up to bilk the federal government and students while funding a pernicious ideology that is spreading across our higher elite like cancer. At the root of it is a rigged financial system. These industries beclown themselves because they can. They can because students pay. But more so, they don't even really need the students to pay anymore. It has become increasingly clear in the size of university endowments, which Malcolm Gladwell recently revealed as a scam of epic proportions, focusing his laser on Princeton University. Princeton is the world's first perpetual motion machine, Gladwell writes. At the heart of his argument is this, quote, after a stellar year in 2021, Princeton University has an endowment of $37.7 billion. Over the past 20 years, the average annual return for the endowment has been 11.2%, which puts Princeton's return next year at roughly $3.77 billion. He continues, now what is Princeton's annual operating budget? That would be $1.86 billion. The arithmetic is not hard. $3.7 billion in investment minus $1.86 in operating still leaves you with $1.91 billion, leading him to conclude what? Quote, Princeton could let every student in for free. The university administrators could tell the U.S. government and all of its agencies, it's cool. We got this. They could take out the cash registers in their cafeteria. They could hand out free parking to all visitors. They could give away Princeton sweatshirts on Nassau Street. They could fire their entire accounts receivable staff and their entire funding staff tomorrow. In fact, his team even put together this handy little chart. Princeton has been not just doing this recently, but for nearly two decades. On a year-by-year -year basis, their endowment return, just the return, nearly exactly equals or surpasses the entire operating budget of the whole school, meaning no student would ever need to be charged tuition again. Or you could imagine a world where students pay much, much less. Also, as you can guess, this is not just the case with Princeton University. It's the case with almost every Ivy League institution in this entire country, whose endowments in some cases surpass, and I'm not kidding, the GDP of small African nations. With this mountain of wealth, don't, why, why are they not doing what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to spend it on students. Instead, they simply reinvest the returns, build an ever-growing pile of cash, giving fees to money managers, all while continuing to raise tuition precipitously, even when you're all giving them is freaking Zoom school. <laughs> tuition at Princeton right now is $80,000 a year. Let it sink in. That is 10 grand more than the average U.S. household income annually. Which brings us to the tax code. Now look, I have long been critical of the 2017 tax cuts instituted by Trump and the Republicans. Mostly, it was a giveaway to the largest corporations in the U.S., stock buybacks that served, that came back to us, bite us hard when the COVID pandemic showed that it turned out we don't make anything in our country here anymore. But there was one good part to it and it was called the University Endowment Tax. The TCJA, as it was known, imposed a 1.4% tax on net investment income of private university endowments, which enroll at least 500 students and have endowment assets exceeding $500,000 per student. Only 40 universities in the entire country even met that criteria at the time. Now it's about 100. The thinking was this. If you exceed half a million dollars per student, you clearly are not spending the money on actual students. You are just earning a ton of money. Hence, you have to pay a tiny, a measly 1.4%. 
If you admit more students or if you spend more money, voila, you pay no tax. If you don't, well, now you pay only 1.4%, which considering their average return is 11%, you do the math. They are still coming out billions of dollars on top. But even this tax, they cannot stomach, with an all-out war begun right now by the major Ivy League institutions. Harvard, Princeton, and other tax entities are heavily lobbying Democrats in Congress to relieve them of what they say is an unfair tax burden. And the corrupt bargain actually almost won. A relief to the tax was actually included in the original Build Back Better bill, but eventually died in the Senate. Their ongoing lobbying effort in Congress continues with sympathetic ears amongst the Democratic Party elite, which increasingly is driven by the concerns of the university educated. And this brings me back to my original opposition to student loan debt relief in the first place. These universities have become fantastically wealthy on the backs of students and government-backed programs, which require nothing on their part. They increase tuition, they use the money to fund their endowments, they are printing untold billions. Relief without targeting these criminals is effectively a bailout of higher ed with zero consequences for the actual bad actor in this situation. Now that the Supreme Court is poised to strike down debt relief as unconstitutional, it is time to actually deal with this. Students desperately need help. They should get it properly through the legislative process. Congress should not only reject the overtures of these greedy criminals to provide them tax relief, they should increase that tax to 100% from here on out. That way, we never have to be back here again. We can force universities to spend the money they earn on students, and we should consider an even more strong excise tax to fund student loan relief for all time, not just once, forever. That's a fair solution. But given currently the Democratic Party control by these universities, don't anticipate it anytime soon. They will just let the problem fester for even longer, and they're going to let these criminals off the hook. I mean, how crazy is that? That they can't even pay a one point. And if you want to hear my reaction to Sagar's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, you voted for President Biden, but now you say you feel like he's turned his back on you. Why? Well, what we've seen with this great rail strike of 22 that has ended very undramatically is we've seen unionized workers' right to bargain collectively get trampled on. Their voice has not been heard. They voted against a contract. We have a pro-labor president who loves to, you know, pat himself on the back for that. <clears throat> and when the going got tough, he turned his back on the people he's supposed to be looking out for. The leaders we vote in who are supposed to support us you know, turn their back on us, yeah, the system's broken. Back in 1981, Ronald Reagan, a former union leader himself, intervened in a strike of air traffic controllers and forced them back to work. It was a seminal moment in labor history and marked the official launch of decades of labor movement decline and a bipartisan project of union busting, which has continued more or less unbroken up until this very year. Now, Reagan's decision to break the PATCO strike helped jumpstart the era of neoliberal market fundamentalism that we have been suffering through ever since. But now, we're at a different moment with the president who has promised to be a break from all of that. Neoliberalism, of course, is a political philosophy and as a paradigm has been rejected by the public. It's actually receding by some measures, process which has been accelerated, like many things, by the pandemic. We see some reshoring of jobs. We see a new dabbling in industrial policy supported by both parties. And we see historic grassroots energy in the labor movement. A rising militancy across the workforce that I have not seen outside of the wave of teacher strikes, which were a prelude to this new surge of organizing and action. 
So this wave of action, it's been enabled by the worker-friendly officials that the Biden administration has appointed to the National Labor Relations Board. But the truth is, while President Biden claims to be a great friend to labor, he has personally been nothing but a disappointment. He campaigned on the PRO Act, but immediately dropped it. He promised to block union busters from receiving federal contracts. But he hasn't said a peep about that pledge since he's been elected, even as Amazon, which gets billions from the federal government, engages in brazenly lawless union busting across the entire country. And now, the final gutting disappointment. When push came to shove, Biden did exactly what Reagan did before him. He sided with Capitol, and he broke the strike. Now, there's a lot of Democratic cope right now about this undeniable reality. Yeah, but the Dem partisans would say, more Democrats voted for worker sick days than Republicans. Sure, Republicans are no friend to labor, and even the ones who voted for the paid sick leave mostly wanted to jam and embarrass Biden. But let's be clear about who was in the driver's seat here the whole time. It was Biden, and it was the Democrats, driving this train the entire way. It was Biden's presidential emergency board that pushed the first horrendous deal. It was Biden's team who led the negotiations that led to another merely bad deal, the so-called tentative agreement. It was Biden's labor secretary who destroyed worker leverage when he immediately called on Congress to block a strike and cram down that tentative agreement if workers did not agree to it. It was Biden himself who then ultimately called on Congress to cram down the agreement and a Democratic Congress which obliged, allowing a show vote on seven days of paid sick leave that they knew was destined to fail. And the administration's rhetoric was exclusively focused on the pain that a rail strike would cause to the economy. They never took the rail barons to task for denying a basic benefit to their workers. After Democrats in the House actually passed seven days of paid sick leave, Biden issued a statement that didn't even bother to ask the Senate to vote the same way. There was no public pressure campaign. There was nothing but fear-mongering about how devastating a strike would be, a talking point that plays right into the hands of Warren Buffett and the other rail bosses. The only silver lining of this whole catastrophe was watching Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg squirm <laughs> as CNN's Jake Tapper absolutely raked him across the coals. Because in this moment, the utter vacuousness of the neoliberal approach to labor politics was on full display. And Pete is nothing if not the McKinsey-trained, living, breathing embodiment of the failures of technocratic market fundamentalism. They're happy to support workers. They believe in paid sick leave and worker protections, so long as it doesn't come into even the tiniest bit of conflict with the oligarchs who they have put in charge of the country. Take a look. Why are you okay passing a deal that does not guarantee paid sick leave for these union workers? Well, first of all, the importance of this deal is that a rail shutdown is being avoided. If that were to happen, we would have seen hundreds of thousands of American workers laid off, uh, energy prices shooting up once refineries were unable to continue operating, uh, issues getting chlorine to uh, water treatment plants, uh, auto industry uh, factories shutting down within hours, uh, if, uh, if not days, uh, of that happening. So what, what we've been able to avoid uh, is a major blow to workers, farms, families across the country. So Tapper's initial question here basically amounts to, hey, asshole, aren't y'all supposed to be the party that supports paid sick leave? To which Pete barfs up their corporate back talking points about the economic perils, which had to be averted as if there were no other choices available to them to both give workers a better deal and to avert that economic catastrophe. Worth remembering, too, that Pete self-righteously defended his own lengthy time off after he and Chaston became fathers, <laughs> even though he was transportation secretary and the entire supply chain at that time was totally effed. 
Also worth noting that I saw a level of outrage when Pete's time off was attacked that I have not seen matched by a level of outrage when the time off of over 100,000 blue collar workers is now decimated. But wait, with the Tapper interview, there is so much more. The, the question is, these, these rail lines, they're making billions of dollars. Profits are up for all of them, quite a lot in, in some cases. You and I have paid sick leave. My crew has paid sick leave. Why don't these railway workers deserve paid sick leave? Well, let me remind you, the position of our administration is that every American worker ought to have paid leave, whether you're a railroad worker, a journalist, a federal government employee, uh, or whether you work at Burger King. We, we believe that every American worker, certainly every full-time American worker, ought to have paid leave. The president has proposed that. Uh, the president has advanced that in proposed legislation. And so far, uh, it has been unable to get past uh, what has been unified Senate Republican opposition. Uh, we are going to continue to press for that. Again, uh, not just picking and, and choosing one sector over another, but based on the basic idea that every single American worker ought to have paid leave, just like you have in pretty much every country in the world. Right, but, but for now, right now, the tentative agreement that was reached at the bargaining table between union leaders and companies contains provisions like this pay raise and other improvements. Right. I, I get it. But saying that they ought to have paid sick leave and then getting in there and saying to the, 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 the Warren Buffetts of the world, give these guys paid sick leave or the White House is going to make you guys out to be the bad guys and you're going to be the ones that are forced to blink after your reputations take a number of hits, that's a different matter. We've heard from multiple union workers who feel like the Biden administration has let them down. Uh, Gabe Christensen, a freight railroad uh, brakeman who lives in Nevada, he told CNN, quote, here we have someone, meaning Biden, who touted themselves as the most labor-friendly president for many decades, and he basically just betrayed us. There really is no difference between Democrats and Republicans anymore. They're just feeding corporate greed, unquote. What do you say to Gabe Christensen? Pete goes on to a bunch of blah, blah, blah about how great the Biden administration has actually been. But Tapper has him dead to rights here. It is one thing to theoretically support paid sick leave. It is quite another to have to stand up to the billionaire class. Tapper finishes him off with that devastating quote from Christensen, which should be the nail in Pete's political coffin. Now, this moment exemplifies why, while Biden has actually been a little better as president than I thought he would be, he and his way of politics are fundamentally inadequate to the moment. At a time when the labor movement is scraping and struggling to be reborn, when they needed a champion, he instead morphed into frickin' Ronald Reagan. Occasionally with Biden, if you squint just right, you can catch a glimpse of what a post-neoliberal era might look like. It'd have reshoring, it'd have infrastructure, debt relief, antitrust enforcement. But ultimately, when the full measure is taken, he will always, always disappoint. My only hope is that while Reagan's strike-breaking signaled the beginning of an era, Biden's strike-breaking will be seen as the last gasp of a zombie era that should have been long ago left for dead. And listen, say all you want about the Republicans. And if you want to hear my reaction to Crystal's monologue, become a premium subscriber today at breakingpoints.com. All right, guys, um, we are going to post our interview with Congressman Ro Khanna about the Twitter files and his surprise mm -hmm. appearance in them later. Um, but as always, thank you guys so much for watching. If you are able to come to our year-end spectacular shows in New York and Boston this week, please do so. Um, we would love to have you guys in attendance. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I can't wait. Live show. Last time I get to shout that um, at everybody. Uh, it's been a fantastic experience. Thank you, everybody who supports us, uh, premium subscribers. You guys enabled those emergency reaction segments from CounterPoints. They did a fantastic job. CounterPoints will be here in the chair at the Breaking Points desk while we're away, and we will see you all next week.
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.